Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, a day after the death of Burnaby Constable Shailen Yang, we look at the revolving door of enforcement as police contend with random acts of violence and push for better mental health and addiction services. Plus, from mass sign-up shenanigans to young activists fighting an old guard, we take a closer look at the NDP leadership race as internal party feuding has gone full Game of Thrones. And coming home, Al Biaxa joins us to discuss why his son signed a one-day deal to retire as a Vancouver Canuck. That's all next on the Jazz Johal Show podcast. We'll start with the, the incident yesterday uh, regarding Constable, uh, well, the constable that we all um, were so um, moved by when we heard what happened, Constable Shailen Yang. Uh, today we learned a charge of first-degree murder has been laid against a man in connection with the fatal stabbing of a Burnaby RCMP officer on Tuesday. The BC Prosecu- Prosecution Service announced a few hours ago that Jong Won Ham has been charged uh, in the death of Constable Shailen Yang. Uh, Ham made his first appearance in court earlier today and was remanded in custody uh, to November 2nd. Now, court records show Ham, who is in his 30s, was wanted on an assault charge related to an incident uh, in Vancouver on March 17th. A warrant for his arrest had been issued on Monday. Yang was the, uh, Constable Yang was the only officer to fire her weapon in the incident as well. The IIO is investigating her actions because the office's, office's mandate is to review all police actions resulting in death or serious harm in uh, BC. Now, Yang had been with the RCMP for three years before she died. Uh, described by her superiors yesterday as a kind and compassionate person, she worked for the Burnaby Detachment's mental health and homelessness outreach team. Uh, the chief superintendent, Graham de la Gorgandier, officer in charge of Burnaby RCMP, spoke about Constable Yang yesterday. Please take a listen. Standing here today, speaking about the impact line of duty death of one of our members is probably the most difficult thing I've had to do in my career. Loss of uh, Constable Shailen Yang is immeasurable to her family, her friends, to all of her team members and colleagues. Her death while on duty and in service to our community is both senseless and tragic. Constable Shailen Yang will always be remembered. Her service and sacrifice to our community will never be forgotten. That was Chief Superintendent Graham de la Gorgandier, officer in charge of Burnaby RCMP. Joining me now to discuss the challenges before uh, law enforcement is Tom Stamatakis. He is the president of the Canadian Police Association. Tom, thank you for joining us today. You're welcome, Jess. I know it's a very difficult time uh, for all officers uh, who heard of uh, the news yesterday. Can you give us your thoughts on what you're hearing from the law enforcement community? Well, the community's reeling, frankly, because uh, not just because of the impact of Constable Yang's uh, tragic murder, but uh, and you heard the chief su- superintendent describe the impact of that on 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 uh, the people that work with her, but it, but the broader police community in Vancouver. But this is on the heels of you know losing uh, three other officers, also uh, murdered while performing their duties. 
and it just it's just been uh, you know back to back losses, and it's it's devastating. Um, as you were saying, you've lost other police officers. Uh, is the the job itself in the last couple of years because of COVID and many other reasons, is it that much more dangerous right now for officers to be out? Well, I think anytime you see an increase in violence in the community, um, you know, we're seeing uh, more frequent incidences of, of incidents involving stabbings, knives, uh, more incidences involving firearms and shootings. That then has a knock-on effect where it does uh, create more more issues and more concerns around safety for our members because they they are the ones on the front line interacting with these people who who seemingly um, get involved in these kinds of, of violent uh, criminal activities that have a significant impact on communities right across the country with no real it doesn't seem like there's a lot of uh, consequence or accountability with respect to what they're doing, and 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 things are getting worse for them. Therefore, the risk increases for our members, and it's uh, it's a real shame that um, uh, we're in this situation in this country. And I think you know, if one positive thing comes out of this tra- these tragedies, is some kind of you know reflection or self reflection, you know, in our communities, our our elected officials, other community leaders around. Um, you know, the kind of conversations that are happening about policing. I think our police officers do incredible work every day. You heard the description of Constable Yang. That that description can describe, you know, any any police officer right across the city in terms of compassion and empathy and positive impact they have in communities. So let's let's have those conversations and support police officers rather than expose them constantly to what's often unfair criticism or rhetoric around their activities um, unnecessarily. I think if police deserve to be criticized, they should be, and but that should happen fairly with, you know, absent of any rhetoric and, and inflammatory sort of mm-hmm. language that, that has an aggravating effect. I just don't think it's, I think we need to rethink um how we've been having these conversations. If you're just joining us, we're speaking to Tom Stamatakis, president of the Canadian Police Association. Uh, we are, of course, talking about uh, the death of Constable Shailen Young, Burnaby RCMP officer who died yesterday. Um, Tom, I spoke to Wally Opal a couple months ago about short-term, medium-term and long-term solutions to some of these challenges we're, we're facing. And one of the things um, at the time Wally Opal said was that having more boots on the ground is probably one of the best short-term solutions we can provide just in regards to resources, in regards to uh, more police walking the beat, a sense of safety as well. Would you concur with something like that? Yeah, absolutely. We Our police services right across the country are struggling with resources. I think, um, you know, the tragedy um, in Burnaby is a good example of where having more um, police officers on the ground, uh, more resources, um, will only enhance safety, not just for the police officers, but for the public. If if we can respond to the challenges with the right amount of resources, not having to deploy single police officers to what can become very dangerous situations. I think that's a, that is an appropriate and necessary short-term solution, but, you know, we've, we've got, um, people in the community that are struggling with all kinds of whether there's substance use issues mental health issues without any support there needs to be investments around that we need to get ahead of 
um, how we're responding to chronic offenders, uh, people who are committing these same types of violent crimes, using weapons over and over again, yet you know they're being released. And I'm not suggesting that incarceration is the only solution, but it's got to be part of the solution mm-hmm. if we can until we can get to what the underlying issues are that are driving people to this kind of behavior or or conduct. Yeah. Uh, I don't know the situation here in each detachment, each uh, police department's going to be different, RCMP, municipal, whatever it may be. Is it common for police officers uh, to go along with bylaw officers? Shouldn't there generally be two or is there is there a policy there has to be two police officers going together? I, I, I don't know because every city can be different. I'm just very curious in regards to policy. Is that uh, the norm in regards to going going alone to, to, do, to do what uh, Constable Yang was doing yesterday? Uh, there's a number of factors that come into play. You're absolutely right. Each each community is going to be faced with their own challenges. Often, uh, a lot of these decisions or how officers are deployed really does depend on resources. There are uh, best practices that most police services abide by, where where you know if the if the risk is known, and then typically, you know, you wouldn't deploy a single officer if you knew that someone was armed with a weapon or if you knew that somebody was intent on harming someone but but part of the challenge especially when you know there's a shortage of resources is many of these calls and we we've seen this from from this tragic death we saw this in the in the circumstance with uh constable hong in toronto we and and it's the same issue with uh, the two officers that were recently killed in ontario and you know i'll, I'll be attending their funeral tomorrow in barry hmm. uh but you know, police officers are routinely responding to incidents where they have no control over the environment. They don't know uh, what the risk is necessarily at the outset. So that's why properly funding and resourcing police services is so important so that we can mitigate the risk by having the right amount of resources, by responding uh, in a way that uh, reduces the risk and the potential for harm to the police officers, but also to the public that we're, we're, we're trying to serve and protect. Do you uh, take some solace in, in the um, election results in Vancouver um, uh, on, over the weekend where crime and the discussion over crime uh, was quite significant and one of the bigger policies uh, was bringing in or wanting to bring in 100 police officers and 100 mu- mental health nurses. Do you think that the tide is turning in regards to some of the comments you're, you're, you've made today? Well, I take solace in the outcome of the election simply because we're for a change. We're going to have a mayor and, and elected officials that 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 are talking positively about uh, policing and the police uh, role in the community and in in the broader community safety conversation. And I think that's what I was alluding to before. Mm-hmm. We need more of that. We need we need more of that and less rhetoric where. You've got people and uh, elected officials or people, community leaders that are um, um, making divisive and inflammatory uh, statements, often um, um, not supported with good facts and evidence about the police. And it's it's unfair, and it creates it it has an aggravating effect on the on the environment, uh, the the challenging environment that our people are working in as they try and support um, citizens and communities uh, doing very difficult work. So, so yeah, I, I think that was a positive outcome, and, and, and I think that there are other communities where we've seen that shift. And, and again, I agree with uh, Wally Opel. I think th- this is not a question of one solution or, 
uh, for everything. I think there's things we can do in the short term, and I do think that involves properly resourcing police or services. But in the medium and longer term, we have to make those appropriate investments to make sure that people that are struggling get the supports they need. Tom, thank you for your time today. I know it's very difficult. I really appreciate you making time and, and, and chatting on this issue for us. It's very important. Thank you so much. You're welcome. The person in charge of running the BC NDP leadership race uh, is recommending Anjali Apadurai be disqualified from the contest, something Richard Zussman broke last night on the news hour and what we were talking about uh, just a few minutes ago prior to the break. Now, if the party's executive takes the recommendations from Elizabeth Call, it would mean David Eby is the only eligible candidate and would become BC's next premier. And as Richard Zussman told us prior to the break, the party executive meets at 6 p.m. to do uh, discuss and vote on Ms. Epidurai's um, uh, leadership hopes. Uh, she is uh, under investigation for multiple breaches of the party's leadership rules. Joining us now is Michael Gardner. He's the president of Strategies 360, and he's the former provincial director of the BC NDP party. Michael, thank you for joining us today. Thanks, John. Uh, m- what do you make of this report? Uh, many have said uh, that, look, uh, Ms. Epidurai should have been given the opportunity to move forward. Other of us have said, no, uh, this is a leadership campaign uh, that broke many rules. Where do you sit on this issue? Well, you know, when I was on your show a couple months ago when these allegations first emerged, I was ready to give uh, Apadurai the benefit of the doubt on these matters. And I I said at the time that I expected a senior uh, respected person from the party to do a review. And we see that in Elizabeth Call's review. It was detailed. It was thorough. And it looked to me as though it identified a pattern of rule-breaking, not just by the candidate, but by those acting on her behalf. And, uh, you know, I, I don't see how the party could choose to allow her to go forward in this circumstance. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is wrong with someone like Ms. Apadura, who's going to use her, her network uh, to attract uh, potential party members to vote, uh, and why is uh, she being disqualified when some would argue, look, you want young activists, you want young people engaged? Does this help the party at all? Because my sense is, this is go- isn't this going to alienate an entire generation of, of young activists? I, look, I think there's no question that this is going to create a difficult time for the BCNDP. It's always difficult to disqualify someone, especially who's put in this kind of effort. Uh, but I think David Eby... Uh, is the kind of leader who shares values with a lot of the folks who have backed Anjali Apadurai uh, and is going to be able to, in the months ahead, chart a course that will uh, start to bring the confidence of those folks back to the BCNDP. And, of course, the vast majority of BCNDP supporters support the agenda that John Horgan has taken and support the direction that they expect David Eby to take. Uh, How much of this blame do you think uh, lies at the feet of the party for allowing its membership to remain relatively low, uh, even though they happen to be in power, number one, and the fact that Mr. Eby also didn't, uh, it appears, didn't sign up enough members. Yeah, I mean, David Eby emerged uh, early on as a consensus candidate among his caucus colleagues. And I think because of that, uh, there was a reasonable assumption he made, I think, that uh, there wasn't going to be a gamed leadership race. Uh, And so he wasn't, I don't think, quick to start up his sign-up process, nor was it going to be necessary. Uh, And so that's a factor. Of course, uh, when you have a party that hasn't had a contested leadership race since 2013, membership numbers drop. Uh, And then you had this this campaign by third-party organizations uh, to sign up members en masse. 
uh, whether or not they support the goals of the NDP, uh, and it changed the nature of the game. So I don't think we can lay this either at the feet of David or at uh, the feet of the party. I think this lies squarely at the feet of not just Anjali Apadurai, but of the organizers uh, who broke the rules on her behalf. What does this say to not just the NDP, but other political parties that may have sort of a one member, one vote? You sign up one member, they can vote. Other parties have a weighted system where you choose one riding, where you, let's say, you know, uh, sign up 10,000 people, and another riding where you sign up 200 people, but they weight both of those ridings so they're equal rather than one member, one vote, which the NDP have. In an era today of launching digital campaigns and to be able to reach people much easier, much faster, are parties not susceptible uh, to a takeover? And is it time to, to, to perhaps uh, look at different rules for leadership moving forward? I, I think every party is going to have to do that. Uh, and I think there's going to be some examination of mixed models. Uh, you know, in the European part and in, in the British Parliament, uh, you have to get a minimum amount of support from your caucus before you can stand for election. Uh, and given one of the key roles of a, of a leader is to lead the caucus, that's not an unreasonable requirement. Uh, so I think we'll see a whole lot of looking at how do parties ensure that true supporters are the ones making the decision about who is going to lead them into the future. Do you think there is a generational battle going on within the NDP when you have people like Ms. Epidurai, her supporters, her strategists, not just in the NDP, but you also see it in civic politics in Vancouver, uh, that younger generation that plays a significant, believes that climate change is part of, should play a significant role in policy making, and those that are perhaps older saying, look, there's got to be a greater balance between industry and climate change and many other issues as well. Um, do you see a generational battle that is brewing behind the scenes among the centre-left in our city and our province? You know, this is, this is a generational gap that has existed uh, as long as I've been involved uh, in the BCNDP, and that's uh, going back more than 30 years. Uh, there's always, and when I was one of the young, enthusiastic environmentalists, uh, and was concerned my party wasn't uh, moving fast enough at the time. Uh, and, you know, over, over time, members learn the value of compromise, uh, but it's not new. It's not new that there is this uh, an enthusiasm for environmental protection among the younger members, uh, and, and, and the social values and the economic values uh, and, the, and the need for balance in a strong economy emerges uh, in the majority of the members over time. That's not new, uh, and... Uh, it's something that I think will continue within the NDP, and it's a healthy tension. I'm going to ask you this question again, and it's my final question. I want to go back to the issue of signing up members. Do you think Mr. Eby would have had any of these difficulties if he had just signed up more members, if he had just gone out and been much more aggressive in chasing members so you didn't have to worry about who Anjali Apadurai signed or where they came from? I mean, honestly, we don't know at this point who signed up how many. And the fundamental question that Elizabeth Call addressed was, is it possible in the way these signups went that illegitimate signups could determine the outcome? Uh, we don't know whether David would win cleanly, uh, Evie would win cleanly, or whether uh, Angeli would uh, if in the absence of these signups. Uh, but we can anticipate that David did fine in the signups. I know he was out doing the work. Uh, and uh, that wasn't the question at the end of the day. The question was, did she break the rules adding members uh, who could then influence an outcome. Michael, thank you once again, my friend. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Jeff. 
I told you there are no non-smokers in Vancouver? Well, judging by the air quality right now, uh, I don't think too many people would disagree with me. In fact, um, I'm seeing numerous stories uh, online, and many people are going to a lot of these uh, sites that can give you um, uh, sort of a breakdown on on poor air quality around the world. Uh, I've I've seen some sites saying that uh, breathing air in Vancouver uh, is equal to smoking five cigarettes a day due to our poor air quality. A lot of that, of course, has to do with wildfires burning southeast of Chilliwack, uh, near Chilliwack Lake, near uh, Hope, near Harrison Lake, and in in Washington State as well. Joining me now to talk a little bit about air quality in the Lower Mainland is Kyle Howe. He's the Metro Vancouver Air Quality Analyst. Kyle, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, Give me a sense of what you're seeing right now uh, in the Lower Mainland in regards to the quality of air. So we've had an air quality advisory in place since last Friday, October 14th, mm-hmm. um, and that is still in place now. Uh, and basically across the entire region, including the Fraser Valley Regional District, air quality has been quite bad today. Um, and we expect that's going to continue until we see a more significant change in the weather conditions. And, and uh, is, so it, is, is it as simple as just waiting for a bit more rain? Right now, uh, it's really looking for winds uh, that will bring in cleaner air from uh, alternate sources. So uh, as you said, you know, a lot of the fires are burning just to our east. Um, So we're looking for stronger winds sort of from the west direction that will help to scour out some of that uh, smoke. And and hopefully uh, Friday is the day that uh, weather will change and improve our air quality. Mm -hmm. Is there much people can do in a day like this uh, that that may have asthma or may have, uh, I was reading on, on Twitter, some people talking about the fact that they were uh, getting headaches. What kind of things do you think people can do to, to at least uh, uh, help them in, to deal with uh, the present situation? So when we issue an air quality advisory, we're really talking to people that have underlying conditions. So those are people with, you know, cardiovascular issues, chronic diseases, um, pregnant people, young people, old people. Those are the really sensitive groups that need to take um, precautions to protect themselves. But in situations like we're seeing today and yesterday where uh, concentrations of smoke have been so high, uh, we're really telling everyone to just reduce their outdoor exposure. Uh, The key here is to just, you know, take it easy, uh, you know, postpone your exercise if you're considering doing that, uh, and just wait until conditions improve. Mm -hmm. How do you measure air quality and where where are your, I guess, monitoring stations? Metro Vancouver actually has uh, over 30 stations across the region, uh, and they extend from Horseshoe Bay in the west all the way to Hope in the east. And all of these stations are collecting data in real time, um, and that's actually published uh, on our website, airmap.ca. So everyone can go there and see real-time data from this network. And we have a number of staff here that are constantly reviewing the data uh, at all times to to see the levels and then advise the public uh, if those levels exceed our criteria. Have you been to places yourself personally that, that, that that's had poorer air quality than Vancouver? Uh, so, I mean, I certainly live in, in sort of Vancouver area, and um, it's been quite bad the last couple of days. And I know uh, folks that are out in the valley in places like Chilliwack and Hope have been dealing with really poor air quality for, uh, uh, you know, much longer than, than people sort of in Vancouver and the western portions of the region. Um, but, again, we're, we're hoping that uh, sort of conditions will improve here in the next couple of days and that um, hopefully we are sort of done with smoke for the rest of the season, uh, fingers crossed. Is our geography um, 
I mean, we're on the coast. Uh, we get heavy winds at times, rain, of course. Is our geography a hindrance in regards to some of that air quality, or is it actually a positive? I know in cities like Beijing, it's viewed as a bowl, and it, and it sits there sometimes, and besides other practices as well. Are we physically actually, uh, is it an attribute for us generally beyond what we've been seeing the last few days in regards to air moving and, and quality of air? Yeah, so outside of the times that we're dealing with these wildfire uh, smoke impacts, we do have really good air quality. And a lot of that is to do with where we sit. Uh, So we're on the West Coast. Um, We have a lot of that clean marine air. And then, of course, as an organization, we've implemented a lot of uh, sort of programs to sort of help reduce local emissions. So in general, our air quality is quite good. But in times of like this, um, you know, the the shape of our region actually can cause challenges. So especially out in the Fraser Valley, where you have uh, sort of more canyon-type features, smoke can get trapped in those areas, uh, and it can be hard to scour that out. So um, that's kind of why we're looking for these weather systems to come through that will, you know, more vigorously mix uh, some of the smoke out of our region. Well, fingers crossed that we uh, uh, get some rain and hopefully uh, the, the, the winds change a little bit as well for all of us here in the lower mainland. Kyle, thank you so much for your time. Great. Thank you so much. All right. That's Kyle Howe. Uh, he's a Metro Vancouver air quality analyst. We're talking about the quality of your... I was out in South Surrey um, yesterday and I, I, I really hadn't... It wasn't too bad from where I live, but when I drove into South Surrey yesterday, I, I couldn't believe what I was looking at. And it was quite early in the morning. Uh, I, I did some... Uh, digging around and each day is different and some of these indexes are you know fluctuate in regards to air quality put in context for you you know I've seen ranges anywhere from four to seven cigarette a day habit uh, inhaling air in Vancouver at this present moment so that's when I ask people uh, where none of us are non-smokers in Vancouver because of the wildfires that's exactly what I meant so inhaling the air in Vancouver is about a four to seven cigarette a day habit at this particular point hopefully that changes by Friday now to put it in context for you when I used to live in China in Beijing which is home uh, every day was a 20 cigarette a day habit because of the poor air quality now because of the International outcry, local outcry, the Chinese government's been working very hard in regards to air quality in and around their capital and many other cities. It's gotten better. I've had friends, I have friends who live in China and they're telling me the same thing, but it's, it's not still as good as Vancouver. Uh, but when I lived, there was 20 cigarette a day habit. Now, when I used to live in India, uh, you could see the rise of their economy and pollution and everything else that goes with it. It was getting worse. Today, on a bad day in New Delhi, it's a 33 cigarette a day habit. So I want to put that in all in context for you. We're having some bad days and if you have asthma, if you have challenges, please stay indoors. Um, please stay in touch with loved ones as well. Now imagine if you're in other parts of the world that have to um, deal with this on a regular daily basis and this is the challenges that we have to face. Some interesting news today, boy. Um, Finance Minister Christia Freeland warned Canadians that the coming months won't be easy as the government works to slow the economy to fight uh, inflation. Uh, It was reported today that the CPI, the Consumer Price Index, rose 6.9% over year over year basis in September, marginally lower than the 7% increase reported one month before. While inflation has slowed somewhat in recent months as energy prices have stabilized, uh, the minister said that the government will not be able to help everyone riding the inflationary wave. Uh, We expect significant challenges and already we're talking about a potential uh, recession or Canada hitting it, heading into a recession uh, early 2023. I wanted to get a, an update from our good friend Michael Levy, CKW's business analyst, on what we can expect. He joins us now. Michael, thank you for speaking to us today. 
Oh, once again, I Jazz, I don't know. When you bring me on, people say, uh-oh, it's Levy again. Bad news. <laughs> well, I don't blame you. It's, it's a global phenomenon, but uh, yeah. we're all feeling it. Uh, give me a sense of... Of, of just your mood, because you, you look at the markets on a daily basis. Uh, what are your thoughts? What are you seeing? Uh, I'm seeing inflation carrying on, I mean, and that's evident, down from 7 to 6.9%. But you take a look at some of the underlying uh, numbers, and the one that bothers me the most, like really affects me on a personal basis, because I can see where people are suffering, and that is the cost of food. Grocery prices rose last month 11.4% annualized. That's on an annualized basis, Jazz. That's the fastest pace of grocery price growth in over 40 years. And that is hitting everybody's pocketbook. There was a bit of good news that gasoline prices came down in September, though you'd never know it if you lived on the uh, on the uh, lower mainland uh, here in Vancouver, but the fact is, is that they're on their way back up in October. So um, what we saw that decrease, which probably helped us come down from seven to 6.9%. Well, with gasoline prices back on the way up and the fact that grocery prices are on the way up, uh, it's going to be a, a significant impact to consumers. And, you know, also it's going to affect Christmas shopping jazz. Mm. Uh in the case of the recession that is coming, um, will this be a long recession? Jazz, that's a really good question because there are so many underlying things that uh, even raising interest rates here in Canada or in the United States may not be enough. Um, uh, you take a look at the price of commodities. You take a look at the price of transportation. You take a look at the cost of money, and it, it's going to be impactful. There's just no way around it. Now, the Bank of Canada, in my opinion is doing exactly the right thing. And Tiff Macklem, the governor of the Bank of Canada, will tell you beyond anything else, including putting the economy into recession, if that's what it takes, slowing down the economy, and that's going to hurt people because it, you're not, it, business won't be as robust. Even doing all those things, his primary concern is inflation because that eats in to the uh, cost of living, that eats into the uh, j just the wherewithal for people to go forward and have a comfortable life. And you just can't keep doing that if inflation goes up. So the bank will raise interest rates until they get down closer to their target rate of 2 2% inflation. We're nowhere near that now. I mean, there's a lot of people. I mean, I mean if you step away from uh, sort of the macro level and just talk about people's finances, the amount of people who have uh, variable rate mortgages that may be coming up uh, in a year or in 18 months, there's got to be significant worry there in regards to what they have been paying and what they're about to be paying. Well, that's true, but with a uh, variable rate mortgage, you can go talk, and I want people to know this, you can go talk to your banker or your lender and uh, sit down and arrange with them a formula that maybe more money in your variable rate is going to go to interest and less rate is going to go to principal. And uh, the banks will work, the financial institutions will work with variable rate lenders. The problem is, is if interest rates go up high enough, then you don't have any excess and you can't pay 
the interest on your mortgage, that's when it becomes a huge problem. At this point, they're not paying off as much, but they do have the variable rate, and they can reasonably survive it. But if we keep going in this direction, it's going to hit, and it's going to be very painful. Yeah, it is uh, It is fascinating to see what's happening, and I think there's so much stress out there for people in their finances between inflation and if they are carrying a, a debt load and, and uh, with interest rates going up, uh, I think there's a lots of nervous folks out there. Uh, Michael, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Uh, have a good afternoon, Jazz. What's being called a first-of-its-kind strategy, three First Nations on whose territory Vancouver was built have come together with city officials to create a path for implementing the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, or UNDRIP. The UNDRIP Task Force's strategy uh, aims to make shared decision-making standard practice in the uh, city's work. Now, the Joint Task Force, uh, with representatives from three nations alongside Vancouver City officials and staff, produced a strategy that contains 79 calls to action aimed at implementing the UN Declaration. The report uh, has been passed by council uh, councils of the three nations, and it will be considered by city official, city council on October 25th with a recommendation that it be endorsed. Uh, our next uh, guest, uh, Hale Salem, is co-chair of the UNDRIP task force. Uh, Hale Salem is an elected Indigenous leader as chair of the Squamish Nation Council. His nation is known for its work on the large-scale development in the city of Vancouver, including the Sinoc lands in Kitsilano, as well as the Jericho and Heather Street lands. He also serves on several intergovernmental committees with First Nations and municipal governments in his elected role. His work over the past five years since he was first elected has focused on market and non-market housing development, urban planning, transportation issues, and government-to-government relations. He is a frequent commentator on local political issues, and he was on our Civic Affairs panel uh, this past weekend and the past six weeks here on this radio station as well. Hal Salem, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So how important was this announcement today? I think it's important because there was a time period where I think a lot of these topics, uh, we weren't ready to have the conversation and, and things have moved in such a way that we're now in a new sort of era. But more importantly than that, I think it, it, it's because of a, a successive amount of traction and momentum that's been built by the nations working with the city. So we're succeeding from working together. And I think that success is breeding more success Uh, that creates benefit for not just the nations, but also the whole region and the city of Vancouver itself. Now, the strategy, as I I said in the introduction, was um, to make shared decision-making standard practice. Um, In practical terms, how would that work uh, in in regards to the running of your community, the running of the city of Vancouver? How would that work? Yeah, no, it's a a really, it is a new area of work in some ways, especially for a municipal government, but it's also something that's already happening. So, for example... Um, one of the big, you know, municipal powers that cities have and municipalities have is around land use and developing policy around how, like, for example, a an, an, uh, neighborhood plan or an area plan. Um, there's been some famous ones in Vancouver, obviously, like the Broadway plan that was recently approved, the Vancouver plan. So those are examples where the municipality, it's their responsibility to come up with a plan for what that community is going to look like or the area is going to look like. But right now, the city of Vancouver has been working with the three nations on policy statements for two very large-scale developments that the nation owns, the Jericho lands and the Heather lands, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. And we're working together. And so a lot of that involves engagement with both communities, you know, the Indigenous and non-Indigenous communities. It means technical staff representing both governments being involved in the 
decision making and the scoping. And then it also means that at the end of that process, you know, all the government leaders are signing on to it together. I think that that's like an example of something that's already happening. And what the strategy, the UNDRIP strategy that was released today says is let's take that best practice and let's implement it across the board mm-hmm. um, and let's um, enshrine it as an ongoing practice um, uh, as a basis for that sort of government-to-government relationship. Your community is fought for so long uh, for your rights, access to your lands. Um, why would you want to give it up? And, and these are my words, not anybody else's. <laughs> Do you worry a little bit about your decision-making process having to be, you know, having to compromise uh, in that very undrep process? If you want to build, let's say, 10 buildings and the city of Vancouver says we'd prefer you build eight, does that mean you would have to follow their recommendation or so their their request, or is it a case of just talking further and trying to hash things out? I think that um, there are times where the nation has exclusive control, and the Sanok development is an example of that. And there are times where the nations have opted into a joint decision-making process. Um, at the end of the day, there's also sort of, you know, one of the big articles in UNDRIP is this concept of free prior informed consent. And that sometimes is mischaracterized as a veto um, and, and, and it uses a way to potentially scare uh, people away from this concept of supporting Indigenous rights. But at the end of the day, what it is, it means that the First Nations have jurisdiction, that, that we have, um, you know, at the underlying that the land belongs to us, but we, we're here to share it. And so we have interests, but also value to add to the process. And so... Uh, you know, a free prior informed consent process just means that we as a government are involved early on. We're able to shape the outcome. The outcome isn't predetermined um, and that whatever outcome is created is created sort of jointly um, with our involvement. So I think what we found is that the city officials and both politically and administratively actually really want to work with us. You know, if we were to ask for higher density, they want to figure out ways like, OK, how do we make this work? Is that, you know, the best practice to follow in the situation? But also, is there ways that we can bring more value to the project? And so I, I would say that the, 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 the practice isn't just based off of some sort of uh, bylaw or policy, but it's also, I think, the spirit and intent of the relationship and the fact that you have a government um, like the City Hall that wants to meaningfully work with the nation in good faith. And there's a lot of really, really good faith work happening. Is, is is any other jurisdiction doing the kind of work we're doing here uh, in British Columbia and City of Vancouver specifically that you can think of around the world that is a model f- for for us? Um, well, what's interesting is um, the Vancouver's UNDRIP strategy that was released today. Um, you know, we shared it with a number of external reviewers, academics and experts and legal advisors who work in, in some of the field, both at a federal and provincial level around Indigenous rights. And what they noticed was, although the provincial government and the federal government have legislation around UNDRIP, that the city of Vancouver strategy is actually goes even further on some areas than the provincial or federal uh, plans do currently. So it's actually even more, more sort of forward-looking and, and more tangible uh, in some ways. But there are places around the world, you know, um, New Zealand, otherwise known as Atiroa, um, has a sizable Indigenous population. They have a historical... A relationship with the Crown, similar to First Nations here in Canada. And they've done a lot of really amazing work um, at building co-leadership or co-decision-making processes, um, incorporated, you know, their Indigenous knowledge and values and culture into the fabric of their society because they say, like, this is actually going to add value to us. And I, I really, truly believe that, you know, when we think about 
the value that Indigenous societies can bring to Canada, that Canada is going to be a far more interesting place if Indigenous rights are upheld. It is a place that everybody can celebrate and be proud of, but also that Indigenous people have a lot to offer and bring. And so I think that's, that's the message. And that's also demonstrated through all the success we've created so far. Uh, I'm curious, and we often talk about what the um, non-First uh, Nations community feels and thinks about UNDRIP. Uh, how is this all playing out in your community, whether it be Squamish, uh, your community specifically, but there's also Musqueam and Tsleil-Waututh as the three nations. But what are you hearing from First Nations people about UNDRIP? And, and uh, I mean, do they have some skepticism or hesitancy in, in this process as, as well? Well, it's a really good question because the reality is, you know, for my community, for example, the average uh, household income for uh, a Squamish family is is roughly around twenty seven to forty four thousand dollars less than the, the the median average in the in the Metro Vancouver area. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a sizable population that are are um, working poor, maybe not one hundred percent below the poverty line, but still really close to it especially with the rising costs. And so there is a reality still today in this community that we do struggle with a number of these socioeconomic conditions. Things have changed and improved in many ways. But, you know, I think for our families and our our community members, you know, their struggle on a day-to-day is often the cost of living, high high rents, the inability to afford a home, um, to live close to their family and their community uh, where they grew up. And these are issues that, you know, spread across uh, all different sort of backgrounds and ethnicities. Um, and so these are problems that we face. It might be a little bit more stark within our community, but they are the issues that are at the top of mind for a lot of our people. And so I do think that um, these are sort of the material challenges that they're facing. And now we're trying to come up with solutions to address those things. And I do think that there are aspects of things like UNDRIP, which is a framework to be able to start providing um, not just like handouts or, or, or you know, programs that are going to create dependency, but actually really lifting people up out of poverty, giving them an opportunity for all kinds of things, whether it's education or careers um, or wealth generation uh, for themselves and their families. And there's a lot there that I think we're now going to embark on, um, which I think is really exciting. But it also, I think, touches on the fact that we're facing very similar issues that the whole region's facing. So the solutions that we create for our own people are also solutions that can be shared, I think, with the region and other uh, Vancouverites or folks that are wanting to live in Vancouver as well. Mm-hmm. And and uh, just to confirm here, uh, as I was saying in the introduction, the report has been passed by councils of the three nations. And confirm for me, it will be before City Council on October 25th? Yes. Wonderful. And then moving forward, uh, it, that is done and, and it's a brand new relationship, a brand new day. It is. And, and I think what's also really um, important to acknowledge is you know, it is going to be the sort of current Vancouver City Council that will be voting on this. Mm-hmm. Um, it'll be one of the last decisions of some of the council members who weren't reelected. Um, but there's also an incoming council that is coming in. And, you know, I'm heartened by the fact that the uh, new mayor, Ken Sim, um, historic win for, for himself as a Chinese-Canadian in Vancouver, first uh, Chinese-Canadian mayor, but also the ABC uh, party that will now govern City Council is that one of their top commitments that they ran on in the recent election was support for the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People and implementing both it and the TRC's calls to action. So this is a this is a bipartisan initiative, which I think everybody in Vancouver should be proud of. That the leadership across multiple parties have put politics aside 
and have come to work on something at a human level and are going to achieve so much success that's going to benefit all of our communities. And I think that that's something everybody should be proud of. Yeah, it's definitely a historic day, Cal. Salem, thank you so much for your time, my friend. Thank you. Back in for Alex Burrows. It's up in the air. Score! I think that hit the mesh, didn't it? The puck looked like it was out of play, but it stayed in. Kevin Bieksa took the shot. Vancouver's won it in double overtime, and the Vancouver Canucks are going to the Stanley Cup Final. Alex Edler has the puck. He puts it off the glass. Everybody in the building thought it was going around the glass. Hits a partition and bounces back to Kevin Bieksa, who puts a three-hopper by Niemi, the goalie, who hasn't even seen where the puck is yet. And the series is over. The Canucks are into the Stanley Cup Final. I mean, what more can you say? You're listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show. On 980 CKNW. What more can you say? Welcome back to the show. Well, plenty. Defenseman Kevin Bieksa will sign a one-day contract with the Vancouver Canucks to mark his retirement from the NHL on November 3rd. The move announced recently will also be celebrated by the team when the Canucks host the Anaheim Ducks that night. Uh, Bieksa spent his first 10 seasons in the NHL with Vancouver, which drafted him in the fifth round in the 2001 draft. He spent the final three years of his career uh, with the Ducks. Joining us now to talk about the one-day contract is Al Bieksa. He is uh, Kevin's father and president of United Steelworkers Local 2009. Al, welcome. Well, thanks, Jazz, for having me on the show, and I want to apologize to the listeners that Kevin couldn't make it here today, and I'll try to do my best to make up for his absence. <laughs> I think you're going to be fabulous. So uh, where, when did the idea come to Kevin or to you? Did he discuss it with you? Well, we actually talked about it. We were uh, uh, we were at a game when he was playing for Anaheim and uh, Vancouver about four or five years ago, and we were saying that uh, you know once his career was over, it'd be kind of nice to come back to Vancouver and retire as a Canuck. So it's in the works for a while, and uh, just before the pandemic, uh, you know the the Canucks had agreed uh, that it was a great idea and they were going to do it, and then because of the pandemic, it kind of fell flat for a while and. Again, he got rejuvenated uh, this year, and um, we're very, very proud as his family to see him retire where he should uh, in Vancouver as a Canuck. How important uh, was it to, for him to come home? Give me a sense of what Vancouver's meant uh, to him and your family, all of you. Well, you know what? Vancouver's meant everything to him, and uh, we've all been uh, diehard Vancouver fans ever since 2001 when he got drafted, and uh, uh, it gives us all great pleasure, his family and his friends, uh, to see him come back to where he should retire from, which is Vancouver. It's, he's always been a, a true blue Vancouver duck. Uh, you know, obviously, retirement um, is always a big day for any professional athlete. Uh, they have put years and years of time, uh, uh, put their bodies on the line. But it also uh, is a reflection of uh, being raised uh, as a young man, uh, being taken to hockey practices. You've been there uh, watching those practices, uh, the ups and downs, the challenges. It's never easy um, uh, until you get to that big day to get to the NHL. Talk to me a little bit about just uh, Kevin as a young man, hockey practices, being a hockey dad, all of that. Yeah, well, I, you know, i got to tell you, i got nothing but respect for uh, hockey parents uh, way back then or, or today. 
Um, there's a lot of sacrifice. There's a lot of sitting up in the hockey stands at five in the morning, nursing and Tim Hortons coffee. And uh, uh, but you know what? At the end of the day, it's all worth it. Whether your your kid makes it to the NHL or plays a, a single game of pro hockey, it's all worth it because they they learn respect. They learn respect for their teammates and their coaches and uh, uh, their opposition and their referees and those kinds of skills are something that will take them uh, through their life in a, in a very grand fashion. So uh, I don't regret all the sacrifices that we make, and I'm pretty sure most hockey parents would agree with that. Uh, it's a great game, and it's, uh, uh, it's actually really fun to watch when they're young kids. Not uh, so much as they get older and you start to worry about injuries on the ice. Yeah, I could, I could only imagine. Uh, now, Kevin's going to have a, a particular highlight uh, that he, he liked, he enjoyed, he was glad to be a part of. Uh, as a person watching from the stands, uh, f- watching from a young age to, to this great career that he's had, are there one or two memorable moments that, that st- stick out in your head? Well, you played a, you played a clip in your opening there about uh, his uh, double overtime goal. I mean, that was obviously great. And I remember a game or two before that when he got his Gordie Howe hat trick. That was uh, pretty exciting. Uh, uh, I know for his brothers and uh, and the rest of the family, we were all kind of cheering that on. And uh, he's had he's had a lot of highlights. But you know what? This is going to sound corny, mm-hmm. but I think I'm way more proud of him for the things that he's accomplished off the ice. Uh, you know, the Rick Rippin Foundation and talking, being an advocate for mental health and, uh, you know, being an advocate for uh, the Ronald McDonald House and all the all the things that him and his wife uh, have sacrificed out of their personal lives to support those charities. That's far more greater an achievement than anything he ever uh, did on the ice. Uh, usually it's the parents that retire first and, and the kids at a much later <laughs> date. In this case, it's a little bit reverse. I mean, he's, he's, he's not like he's uh, just hanging it all up. He's not going to be playing hockey. He's got a, a life ahead of him and doing other wonderful things. You've mentioned some of those charities. Any idea uh, just to, uh, talking to Kevin as to what he'd like to do uh, moving forward? Well, I, he, you know, he signed a, a couple-year deal with Sportsnet. He likes, uh, you know, uh, being involved as, as a sportscaster. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, I think it's someday he'd like to get into the management side of the game. He's become uh, pretty good friends with Brian Burke, and I think that uh, Burke is going to bring him down to Pittsburgh and uh, teach him a little bit about the management side of the game. But to be honest with you, Kevin's really busy right now with his hockey school and with his uh, Sportsnet uh, gig there, and uh I think it'll be a couple of years before he moves on to try something new. But yeah. you know what? The greatest thing would be, first step is he's going to retire as a Canuck, and the second step would be great if he could ever fit into the management of the, of the Canucks. Yeah, because no doubt. That would really bring him home. Yes, talk about coming, uh, coming full circle. Uh, Al, thank you so much for your time, my friend. Really enjoyed my conversation. Every time I, I, I hear uh, United Steelworkers, it reminds me of my dad going down to the sawmill. So uh, I remember the days of the IWA and now uh, Steelworkers. And uh, so thank you so much for your time and also the United Steelworkers as well. Good people over there. Well, thank you very much for having me on the show, Jess. Think local, buy local. How many times have you heard this and how many times have you said, it's trickier than I thought? Good news, a local entrepreneur has created an app that's going to help you connect with local businesses and check out their inventory, all from the convenience of your smartphone. Joining us now to explain is Maya Savix, the founder of Shop This City. Maya, thanks so much for giving us some time here today. 
Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be on the show. I'm a big fan. Oh, appreciate this. All right, so let, let's get right into this, Maya. Um, you're the founder of Shop This City. It's an app that connects users to uh, local businesses, local brands, local stores. And I think that's such an important thing to do. So perhaps you could probably do a much better job of explaining exactly what is Shop This City. Shop This City is the leading discovery tool used to find the best local brands and stores a city has to offer. So users can search for their favorite products, styles, and brands, and we'll show them the stores near them that are carrying exactly what they're looking for. Maya, I'm curious, like, did the pandemic inspire you to create this app, considering you probably realize there's so many people online shopping, but that means a lot of local businesses are struggling and suffering because they might not have that, uh, that ability. So we've actually been working on this for quite a while. We began before COVID, mm. uh, but the pandemic really exaggerated the weaknesses in online shopping and really showed us how important it is to connect with these local businesses and to support them. If we don't support them, they will no longer be around and it really impacts our community when businesses start closing, obviously. So we've been working on it for quite a while um, and we noticed that, you know, I had spent years working in retail in different capacities, digital marketing and e-commerce, um, working on the on the marketing side for some brands that were trying to connect more direct to consumer in the digital space and really having a hard time because they were small two-person team brands. Um, and then also working with a stylist and, and shopping with women every day and watching what that process was like for them and just realizing that there was this huge disconnect between the way people shop online and what they're looking for and the way they're able to actually find it in physical stores near them, knowing that these small businesses have a hard time competing in that digital space. Well, I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, for from where I'm standing, you know, when I try and think of uh, doing some shopping, I, I will look online to browse the catalog first. And then, of course, I'll go in store to see how it fits and how it sizes. Uh, and so I feel like this app offers that opportunity to see what's there and then go and try it or, or go and pick it up or reserve it, however you want to do it. Um, but let's get into the nitty gritty then here, Maya. Like how many partners do you have so far with Shop This City and how many more partners are there to come? So we currently have more than 50 partners on the app, but we have a pretty extensive wait list. We're, we're onboarding new partners as quickly as we possibly can. And we will be launching in Victoria, um, hopefully next week. Yep. Yeah. We're, we're, we're on our, we're on a great track. Um, and so we'll be completing BC within the next couple months. That will also include Whistler and Squamish and then moving across Canada soon. Uh, we're in conversation with Maya Savix. She is the founder of Shop This City. So Maya, walk us through uh, how one might use this app. Our listeners uh, might not be totally uh, aware of how it looks like just yet. So once you open it and you find uh, a particular business that you like or a certain product that you like, how does it all make sense where you press the buttons and all of a sudden you know it's yours? Right. So a user can can click buy now on the item and be taken directly to that item on the store's website where they can check out online if they'd like. We also show you where that item is physically in the city and which store it's available at. And so users can also then go to that location and try the item on or see it in person before they buy it. So it's up to them whether they want to go experience that item or that brand in person in real life in the store or if they'd like to shop with that store online. What has the feedback been like from the partners who have obviously been a part of this, have probably benefited from this? Because I'm sure for them, um, they have so many other things to worry about than creating an app to sort of display what items they have available. And so this is really a nice uh, sort of support tool for them. Yes, and it's my, honestly, it's the best part of my day when I get to talk to our partners and hear how things are going for them. I love hearing stories from them when they say that 
not just a customer came in because of STC, but a new customer came in and discovered them. The best feedback we can possibly get is that our users are discovering amazing local stores and brands through the STC app that they didn't even know existed before. So that that's the whole point of this app. Stores don't have time to manage comprehensive, complicated digital marketing strategies. They are incredible at that in-person experience. They're incredible at curating their stores beautifully with unique products. And what we hope to be able to do is connect, is take care of that, that digital strategy for them and connect them to new customers around the city. Maya, you're obviously the founder of Shop This City, a female-founded company, duh, but can you help explain how and why that is also a significant fact in and of itself? Yeah, um, thanks for asking that. I, I appreciate it. I think in general, you know, it's not, it's no secret that there aren't that many women in tech, um, but also very little startup capital goes to female founders. We recently had a very successful uh, fundraising round but it was rather eye-opening for me. Um, and so it's something that we're going to keep in mind as we grow, who is not being represented both in technology just or in the entrepreneurial space, and how can we help change that? Where can people that are listening today find more information, and is the app available on all the, uh, all the platforms like Apple and, and on Android as well? Yes, it is. It's available on Google Play and in the App Store, and all you have to do is search Shop This City. And the app is ready for you to download. Excellent. Uh, she is Maya Savix, the founder of Shop This City. Maya, thank you so much for giving us a few minutes here today. Thank you so much for having me. It was such a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.